Greetings and welcome to the Pure Report. I'm your host, Rob Ludeman. It is time to bring the orange once again with Justin Emerson, a triumphant return. When you last spoke to us, you're with E Plus, one of our valued partners. Yes. And now you're in the fold. I you're know. in the orange umbrella. Very exciting. Great to have you back. Yeah, thanks for having me back. Yeah, and for you know, folks, if you want to go back a little bit and get a little bit of primer around uh analytics and and data architectures that podcast we did geez a couple years ago it seems like a long time ago and it kind of was two years ago almost exactly two years ago to the day well we're we're super pleased to have you back you're a data architect now at pure storage uh how's it been going here uh pretty good although um changing jobs during a pandemic is always interesting (laughs) i don't recommend it but uh it was uh, definitely a uh uh Great opportunity for me, so very glad to be here. Well, you're pulling it off, and I hear great things about the work you're doing and, and the folks that you're working. What, how would you describe your role looking after unstructured? We were just kind of joking about unstructured, yeah. sounding like, you know, uh, unincorporated yeah. or things <laughs> like that. But really, right. you're, you're looking after these new data types that are out there that are growing faster than anything else. Right. So the last time we were uh, we were together, I talked about FlashBlade and it's related to AI and everything. So um, now I actually work on the team that. Um, covers FlashBlade as a product, but also other unstructured pieces. So our FA files portfolio, um, all that stuff sort of, uh, I, I help the sales team out in those kinds of opportunities, handling those unstructured data types of file and object. And you were, when we talked a couple years ago, you were, yeah, you'd been doing it for a couple years. You just got into it. Obviously the passion is still there. Sure, sure. This is super interesting. And then you jumped over to join us at Pure. How'd that come about? Right. Well, so what's funny is, is that I, I have been in, in love with Flashblade as a product ever since I first got to see it. So I actually got to be in the, one of the other offices over here across the street and, uh, got to see a prototype with Hayes and everything like that. It was super awesome. I was incredibly excited about it. And so, um, I've been, you know, really pushing it on the partner side for a long time. And, um, I got the opportunity to actually come here and, and, and work in the Bay area. Um, when we spoke last, I lived in Southern yeah. California. Now I'm living up here, um, and uh, I was too exciting not to not to jump on that. So very glad I could. Uh, what, what do you love about Flashblade? You know, we were chatting about it just recently mm. in a separate call when we were talking about uh, modern applications yeah, yeah. terminology, which was an interesting discussion maybe for mm. another podcast. But you you made a point that was really interesting about the notion of under the covers Flashblade is actually kind of a database. Yeah, describe that because I'm not sure everybody really grocks that concept that right, that's right. really what's kind of going on behind the covers, which makes it which makes it unique. Right. Well when when you tell people that Flashblade does file and object, the first thing they ask is, well, is it object on file or is it file on object? And the answer is it's neither. It's actually file on database and object on database. Because under the covers, Flashblade is a distributed database platform, which is really interesting because mm-hmm. when you talk to the people who, who helped build the product, right, they weren't just solving a storage problem, they were solving a distributed computing problem. Because when it comes to scale out platforms, the hardest part is not just the storing of the data, but it's all the coordinating of all of the different moving parts of the system. That's why a two controller system where one's primary and one's secondary is a much simpler architecture from a you know programming standpoint than, well, I have you know 128 separate little uh, uh, gremlins running around yeah. doing yeah. things, right? right? You gotta, gotta get all of them in line and, and make it all work. And so that's, it's such an interesting problem. And so um, the, the way that the, the Flashblade team solved it is instead of building a storage box, they built a database. 
uh, a hardware accelerated, you know, integrated storage database, which as uh, a key value store, which on top of it, you could do whatever you want. You could do a uh, file with, you could do file systems, you could do object, you could in theory do other things, yeah, right? Of course. Um, so there, it's, uh, it's, it's extremely flexible and it's such an interesting approach to that problem, right? Because um, all of the other ones that, you know, I've, I've ever worked with, all the other scale up platforms that I had ever worked with on the partner side were a file system first, right? Um, and it was how do we take the file system and how do we make the file system big or how do we make the file system splitting it up or whatever. And so they started from a file system and built other stuff on top of that. And Flashplay just took this completely different approach. It was so interesting to me. Yeah, that ground up approach yeah. and something that we talk about, which applies to the entire portfolio. I mean, it's not just a Flashblade thing. That's true. Yeah, Flash Array, Flash Array. Covers is a key value store as well. Exactly. You know, kind of kind of from the ground up. Well, get us up to speed. You know, we spoke a couple years ago. Uh, people knew things about AI. People knew things about analytics and the mm -hmm. trends, but it continues to explode. There's there's so much out there. You know, I, I you know I have a guy in my team who looks after that, and part of mm -hmm. it is 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 getting him to focus on you know where we can actually make an impact on the places that are growing, and not mm -hmm. just going after every single little shiny thing. Mm -hmm. what, what are the prevailing areas where you see the most growth going on, or even a better way to ask a question: What are those areas that you find really interesting that people are doing with data? Yeah. So I think one of the most interesting areas that I've observed over the last couple of years is there's been a real shift in thinking about how you can use data to train algorithms in that there's been this big revolution in what's called transfer learning. Mm -hmm. So before you, it used to be, well, if I want to build a model, I have to get all the data and I have to start from scratch, right? But now, for example, if you're doing natural language processing, everybody starts from a pre-trained model, um, something like BERT or um, uh, there, there's a few different other ones. If I, the predecessor to BERT was Ernie, um, because, <laughs> of because of course it is. Yes, of course um, it is. And uh, so the, um, the, the idea is, is that, well, let's say I have this, this natural language processing model, right? So how do I interpret what humans are saying? Not necessarily speech to text, but it could be. But like, how do I read something and, and figure out what does this sentence mean for, to a computer? And so if I want to say, for example, uh, train a BERT model to read medical journals, I can train that sort of pre-trained model. I can add the stuff that a medical journal would have. And then I can train it to understand how to read a medical journal, but I don't have to teach it the parts of speech. Mm. If you think about it that way, right? It's kind of like um, you get the basics of how language works and then you layer on top of that. And that's one example of lots of different ways that things are happening. And so that's really um, uh, added uh, to um, the kinds of things that you can do and the speed at which you can do it, but it also creates an enormous computing problem. So like I mentioned, BERT, for example, BERT takes an enormous amount of computing power to, um, to train because it's such a complex model to begin with. So you're starting from this, you know, higher peak, right? And then you're trying to climb the summit even higher. So it becomes all the more, uh, all the more perilous. <laughs> well, and I think that's one of the common themes when we look at this space is that everything is pushing the boundaries of what is possible. Right. Right. I mean, it's it's different than just sort of monolithic apps from mm -hmm. 20 or 30 years ago where, yeah, you're growing at a certain percentage year over year and you can kind of calculate that here. You have 
crazy scenarios. Mm. You know, you have Internet of Things capturing tons of telemetry data. You have fraud detection scenarios. I mean, the the use cases, and, and we when we perhaps get get confused in that. You know, when you're having discussions, how do you how do you put in one category use cases? Right? What what do companies want to actually achieve? versus workloads. I feel like sometimes those get munged together. Mm -hmm. Is that is that kind of the view that you might see or is there confusion in that area? Well, I think that a lot of companies are trying to figure out what can I do with yes. it. Yeah. And so a good way to approach the problem is what are the things that I think I can achieve with the data that I have? Mm -hmm. And then how do I connect those two? And what's what's good is that connecting those two has become easier as more and more people have figured out, oh, well, this is some something that works, this is what doesn't, right? Because as you said, a lot of this is uh, forging new paths in the jungle with the machete. Yeah. And so if you can look in the jungle and you can see, well, there's a pathway there, somebody's clearly gone that direction. And as long as you go that way and and it doesn't immediately stop somewhere and there's a dead body, then you're, you're probably on the right track, right? So, so looking at you know what other people have done successfully um, I think is guiding a lot of people in the right direction but you always want to be thinking about not just you know what can I do with the data but like what is the business driver for making this happen so one of the things I always I always mention is people think that oh the, the big things in healthcare are all around like medical imaging and stuff like that which is which is true but yeah. there's also simpler stuff like uh, length of stay forecasting, like like insurance billing processes, and all these other kinds of things that are business processes that have let that don't necessarily have anything to do with, with like medical treatment, but they're all things that that AI can help with. And there's lots of areas of of uh, uh, advancement in, in those kind of things. So there's there's sort of the headlining things, the things that people see on the on the news. Oh, this thing can identify you know from a eye photograph that you take with your phone whether you have this disease or something like that. Great stuff like that that's really cool yeah but there's also much more uh, I don't want I don't want to say mundane but sort of like basic things that AI can do for almost any business that are that are really interesting yeah and, under the covers yeah and I, and I mentioned I'm, I'm here in the working on the Bay Area team and one of the reasons I wanted to work this job was because there's so many companies here in the Bay Area doing so such interesting things um, that they're they're dealing with the kinds of problems um, that uh, that are really brain teasers. And so they're fun to work on. Well, even right. I mean, we're, we're actually in the Mountain View location. So first of all, thanks for, for meeting me in person. You are the, the first face-to-face -face pod that, uh, that, that I've done since uh, March. So that's a blast. And I'm glad you suggested that. But even when we step outside here in, in Mountain View, you've, you've got the little whirly whirlies on top of the car with all the self-driving cars yeah. that are, you know, that are just kind of cruising around, you know, getting tested out mm -hmm. uh, around here in this whole area. It's just an incubator for all those things. Even, yeah. you know, all the Detroit companies have set up shops in here because mm -hmm. this is this is where it is hot. Which which kind of segues to why I wanted to bring you on today. You know, again, when we were having that chat a couple weeks ago about modern applications, um, you said something that that stood out that was that was really interesting mm -hmm. about workloads uh, or apps. If we want to go there that are ready for flash, mm. right? And so that gets into a whole disk versus flash thing, which again, we've been talking about for right. you know, for 10 years. That's the, the raison d'etre for pure, if you will. There's the first French I think I've ever used in a podcast. <laughs> not, not pronounced very well. I'm sure my, my uh, French former colleagues will uh, ding me <laughs> on that one. But I, I guess to start with that concept, yeah. why when you talk to these folks, why is disk still in use? Do they not know something's better? Is it, you know, what? 
Well, it comes down to the data sets that people are using, right? Yeah. So if you think about it, you know, as problems get more and more complex, the, the size of the data sets that we have to um, address get larger and larger and larger. And so money is not infinite for people, right? Yeah. So if we need to store hundreds of petabytes, the cheapest way to do that is all has, has been disk. And the, um, you know, people have built all sorts of, of, systems on top of that to make them make them work you know just like prior to pure being all flash company there were hybrid companies who thought well the future is clearly flash in front of disk yeah failing failing to see that flash was going to eat away at disk for the rest of time um and what's sort of happened now is there there are large hard drives right mm -hmm. you, they're getting bigger but i when i built my my home nas you know uh, several years ago, I bought 10 terabyte drives and they're still not that much bigger, right? So it used to be disks doubled in size and then they sort of, well, let's do 50% and now they're basically adding two terabytes every year or so, which isn't all that much because if it's already like 16, then you're, you're that's like almost just barely double digit percentage increases year over year, whereas flash is still in, increasing in um, advancement in terms of density and the the real game changer recently has been QLC, right? So so we have the, the Flash Ray C product, which is our, our first product to be a QLC based product from, from the ground up. And what is really interesting is, is when you get into really large data sets or really large data problems, traditionally people would be storing that on large scale out file system or and, and oftentimes backed by disk or they'll have pools of flash and pools of disk and they'll move things around and there becomes this whole data management aspect of it and you know preloading things and, and all this other kinds of stuff and the complexity of that um, is not to be understated there's there's teams of people whose job it is to make all that stuff oh, yeah, work of course um, but with the introduction of QLC, the density that we can get paired with the performance makes it so that there's a whole new, in my opinion, class of workloads that Flash can solve for now in a way that is economical enough to justify the, the change. So, for example, right, a, a Flash RAC, and I think our most dense config, comes out to something like a quarter of a petabyte per rack unit usable, yeah. not, not not raw, raw. right? Yeah. Usable, right? And that's incredibly dense, uh, even against disk. Now there, you know, there'll be those giant tank tanker chassis that are hold sixty drives or something like that, or seventy five or whatever. But um, from a from a density standpoint, two hundred fifty terabytes per rack unit is pretty good. Um, and then the flip side is, is that the, the performance is way better and the power is less. So Directional. Exactly. And, yeah. and that's when you get to large data sets, you start thinking about what are the things on the scale of a data center, right? And what's the limiting factor in a data center? It's usually not space. It's usually power and cooling, it's cooling. right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So if I can fit you know, 42 units in a rack, that's great. But if that's going to consume 30 kilowatts, suddenly I'm looking at 
you know, do I liquid cool the sides of the rack and I'm doing chimneys and all these other exotic cooling stuff that you need to do. And you can talk to any data center person and hear all the cool things that are going on in that space. And, you know, TSMC talked about, hey, we're going to figure out how to run water through microchips yeah, and stuff like that. Ultimately, they'd like to avoid those. Right, exactly. Right. As so an old server guy, we messed around with all those things, yeah. you know, like five years ago. Well, we're going to have this water channel that goes around the board and it's like, well, let's find other ways that we can, that we can <laughs> right. feed the best, physics, right? Well, yeah. You, 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 you know, the, the idea, the best way to, uh, um, to, to cool, uh, uh, powers to not generate it in the first place. That's right. That's so, so if you can build an environment that is faster, takes up less space and takes up less power, even if that costs more, not, you know, or an order of magnitude more, but costs maybe a little bit more, there is a really strong argument, not just on a financial basis, but also on a performance basis, right? If your workload cares about performance and you're spending all of this time figuring out how do I move data around or how do I um, how do I take this cluster file system and, and layer it in such a way that when my application is trying to read this giant chunk of data, it's fast mm -hmm. and not slow. Um, if you can make a lot of that complexity go away, there's a huge win there from a, a usability standpoint, from, a, um, from an application effectiveness standpoint. Um, and then you can actually maybe even store more, right? Because the data sets aren't getting small. Yeah. Um, yeah. They're, they're, all, they're all getting bigger. And so at some point, there's going to be that crossover. We always talk about like what well, performance disk is an oxymoron now. Nobody buys disk systems for performance. Disk systems are now for capacity, right? And so it's how do I layer that with other things to make it perform well? Or, or how large do I need to be in order to meet this throughput requirement that I have? Um, and... With QLC as sort of a category of storage, and I could, I'm sure you've talked to people before about why our C product is so awesome, yeah, yeah. why we do QLC different, so I don't need to rehash that here. But, um, you know, what we can achieve with that at large scale is very interesting. And so for these kinds of large scale workloads where you're talking on the orders of tens or hundreds of petabytes, um, the environmentals become a huge limiting factor. And so it, it's actually better to do it with flash now because of the new densities and the, and the power and performance that we can get. But I think you've hit it with the, the three-dimensional approach, right? Because you still have users that aren't going to know that, that, you know, there's still a perception, right? Flash is expensive. Flash, sure. is, you know, which, which again, 10 years ago, mm -hmm. yeah, that was, that was challenging and it was only reserved for the, you know, for the, for the most extreme use cases. But now you have that crossover point and even then some, but it's the three-dimensional picture of the entire economics with performance added on. Right, and right. I think you nailed it where you talked about the ability to expand, right? Because the data isn't, you know, we get 45 or 50%, you know, unstructured data growth year over year. It's not going down. Yeah. It's going up. So you have all three of those things, you know, the density and the performance and the ability to to grow, but not grow by adding right. lots of disk. And, and, and by, the, and by, the, the, by the laws of physics, uh, the amount of space in a data center doesn't increase every year, nor does the amount of heat that you can dissipate based upon, like the, the laws of thermodynamics and, and, and so forth, don't get better every year. <laughs> Physics is a fantastic thing. I remember, you know, it was like 15 years ago when I was at Sun and one of the architects talked about building like a 10 gigahertz processor and he's uh -huh. like, 
I don't think electrons move from A to B. In that. <laughs> like, I think I think you're going to hit some yeah. boundary. That was a cool concept to go yeah. try to figure out, but physics ultimately yeah, uh, physics is a, physics uh, wins in the end. Is right. I've always kind of I've always kind of joked right. about it's that. Like, uh, physics are a stubborn thing. Yes, something like that. <laughs> well, and we want to get across to, to stubborn users out there or, or folks who just don't know there's a there's a better picture, a better yeah. you know solution for them. Um, and the other way to think about yeah. it is not just like it versus disk, but also what are the new kinds of things that it would enable to enable you to do that you couldn't do before, right? You mentioned that you know years ago people would say, oh well, well flash is the expensive thing, right? Yeah. Well, I like to go back to the, one of the the earliest big consumer uses of of flash, which was like MP3 players and phones, yeah. right? You couldn't make an iPhone or any other smartphone with anything other than flash memory when the form factor was built, right? Like I had an iPod that had the 1.8 inch Toshiba hard drive. I still have it. I still have mine at home. And you remember you would hit a song and then you'd wait and you'd hear the spin. And you could hold it in your hand and feel the gyro. Feel the gyro, the heat, a little bit of heat. You know, they they solved that pretty well, but also there was an excess time. You know, you were sitting there, you know, moving from thing to thing. And And when they announced the next smallest one, they said, we're just going to flash. There's no spinning disc. People were like, that's... That's incredible, yeah. right? It was an entirely new form factor, and like the modern smartphone would not exist without flash memory, right? right? So, if you think about it from that perspective, there's things that disks just can't do. Um, there, are, there are whether it's for space reasons or for power reasons or for performance reasons. There's all these things that could unlock new things. So, I think there's there's workloads that are ready for flash, um, but then there's also workloads that people couldn't do before that may now be possible. And that's always exciting. So what are those? I mean, I, that, was, that was kind of the core reason to have you come on. And right. I think that's what we'll title this pod is, you know, modern apps or workloads that are that are ready for flash. What are those top three or four things or even two? I, you know, mm-hmm. I don't know what you've got chambered that you're seeing out there, but, but yeah. what are those things right now? I'm running X and I'm doing it on disk. I really should go take a look at flash because mm-hmm. it's going to change my world. What, what are the yeah. easy ones that you see? Well, uh, getting back to sort of some of the, the the basic like you know pure storage yeah. you know yeah. the workloads that we're, we're really good at but you know we've, we've talked about you know um, rapid recovery and rapid restore uh, it, you know when I was at a partner right last time we spoke um, it, it's it was a hard sell for me as a technical person to why would I want to do my backup to flash yes um, and if we look at the world today um, there is a very good reason to do that, not just for, you know, uh, rapid recovery when I need to, but also if there's a ransomware event or all of these other things. Right. And so the economics has started to make that even more in, uh, enticing um, and more feasible to do more of it. Um, there's and then, you know, getting into more of the stuff that, that I work on is. It's it more has to do with the large analytics or large AI training or or um, you know th- those kinds of areas where the data just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And you know I worked with a customer that we they were under the impression that the only thing that could work for them would be disk mm-hmm. because they had too much data. Um, but with the density and the speed we can get now, again on those really large scales, the, the, the constraints, the design constraints 
move as you get bigger. And so when you start looking at the whole picture, you start being able to see, oh, well, maybe if I did it this way, it would actually be better. I could do things that this can't do, right? Maybe I can reevaluate the whole way I do my architecture. Maybe I can remove these layers of complexity. So it's hard to get into specifics for, sure. for obvious reasons, yeah. but um, it's, it's very exciting to be able to look at um, large data lakes or large data sets or things that might have been sitting on an, an enormous Hadoop farm, um, you know, uh, that that was uh, brought up a few years ago and now be able to look at it and say, you could actually do that better with Flash and it wouldn't be beyond the pale from a uh, price standpoint kind of thing, right? Because, you know, if you wanted to, if, if you looked at, you know, the very first flash drives that you could stick in, a, in, in traditional arrays, you know, 10 years ago, the economics were like, wow, it's, it's 10 or 20 times more expensive per terabyte than my 10K SAS drives or whatever. Yeah, right? no, it was reserved to the, to the hedge funds and the quants and those zero, guys, right? right? Yeah, yeah, no, and, it was and now, very extreme. And now we're talking about tier two workloads going all flash. Yeah, no, it was very evident. I, I had one of our pure uh, IT guys on a few months ago, and he's a security analytics guy. And we got to that point where I said, so what did you do before? And what he did before was largely in a disk-based environment. Mm -hmm. And I said, you came to pure, what changed? And that was, you know, that was where the light bulb went on. And, and he just he just started going, oh, the performance and then of the flash. And, mm -hmm. and you know, I, I don't have to sit around and wait for results. Right. I, you know, I can I can do my my analytic queries and do my, you know, gather data, right. run different run different sets. And 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 I can do it all really, really quickly compared to you know what I could before, and there's data integrity, and I can fit more. And he's like, he just went off on all these mm. different things, and it's like, oh, what it, it, it let him do things that he couldn't yeah. do before, yeah. right? It, it unlocked new capabilities. If you look at the business world, right, we always thought of well, like analytics is like the data warehouse, and I'm going to run the queries, and I'm going to see what we did last month. Yes. And then it moved to okay, I want to see what are we doing now. Yeah. And if you want to see what's happening now, your time frame to respond is very slim, right? So you have to, uh, the, the, the pressures on the system to give you information that quickly eliminate a lot of other solutions because they just can't do that fast, right? But they got to happen now. Yeah. You know, it's, it's like, the, well, I, I remember the, tra the time I was traveling in the UK and I, I tried to use an ATM there. And within seconds, <clears throat> you know, got card got denied. Oh, yeah. I need I need some pounds. You know, okay, card got denied. Card got denied, and I'm walking out of the bank, and within ten seconds was getting a call from the right. security and fraud division. Yep. Like that was a now thing. That yep. wasn't a. They called me a week later right. or a month later. London. By the way, yeah. we noticed some unusual activity. It was yeah. like right then, and that's yeah. what that's it's like. No, we noticed the same card was used two or three times yes. in a row at the grocery store. Mm -hmm. Is that somebody trying to steal your card? Right. Yeah. All that kind of stuff. Like Love you, that stuff. you have to be doing it in real time to be effective. And so, um, how do you do that? You, you do that with fast infrastructure. Yeah. Right. How does um, a little bit of a shift, but not hugely divergent. How does how does containers fit 
into all this, right? If I mean, if we look at kind of a modern apps approach, mm. you know, do we see containerization being built into here, or is that a not yet? Are they kind of trying to figure that out, or is it a separate, you know? That's really app specific. So, okay, so, that's app specific. So, like, so, there there are there are modern applications that are designed specifically to run in containers. Yeah. Most companies that are building new software today are thinking about how do I run them in something like containers. They're starting right? from there. Um, yeah, and, and the idea that you know, a modern application um, is one that you, know, you uh, point at a some kind of uh, software-defined self-configurable infrastructure and say, go make your application work yeah, as opposed to uh, here's the ISO mount the ISO into this operating system and double click setup yeah and then hit next go through all the steps that's that's yeah, that's how you used to write apps right traditional that's the, that's right. the you know, traditional right. model of the apps and then next is the well here's the you know the the YAML file or here's the the github that you point it to and then it just kind of like creates itself from whole cloth. It's, it's, it's really, it's really interesting. And so those are all written for how do I, um, how do I do this in a way that is portable cloud agnostic auto scaling, all of these other kinds of things. And that's what, that's what containers buys you um, is the ability to do that. Right. Moving applications from private to, to, to public cloud, as an example, has been an enormous challenge for organizations, right? Yeah. But if your application is based around containers, it's just like, I just pointed at that thing. Well, and that's the interesting, you know, conundrum that we see, you know, if you're an enterprise or a company or commercial, whatever, and you've been around for years and years, you know, you, you have this tech debt, right? Mm -hmm. And it's not debt. I'm not saying it in a bad way. Mm -hmm. Those just, those were the things that you used to run the business, right? Mm -hmm. You know, traditional databases, but you're in that situation now where you've got to evolve mm -hmm. and you've got to modernize and maybe you go and adopt some of these new, you know, born in the cloud, cloud native types of things, container aware, container ready, cloud aware, while you figure out what to do with traditional. But if you've come around the last five years as a new enterprise, you've started with that stuff. Yeah. You know, you don't know what those old traditional monolithic databases is. You're doing NoSQL or, you know, some, some other type of thing and all your apps are born in the cloud and you're, right. just, you're just flying ahead. Although then do you reach a point of scalability, right? Do you get so large that you need to go and go look at, go, well, you know, some of these old, older databases, they're enterprise ready, right? They scale, they're resilient. Um, yeah. or, or you hit a scenario where you've moved so much into the cloud that your cloud spend every month would be enough to have your own data center, right? Yep. So, so there's, there's that, that whole thing of like, well, at a certain scale, like, the great thing about the cloud is that the economies of scale for starting small are fantastic. Yeah. It's hard to, hard to beat. Um, but once you get big enough, right, then you start having to think about, okay, does it make sense for me to rent this every month? Yeah. Right. Um, if I need a truck once every two months, I'll go rent it for a day. Right. But if I'm on a job site and I'm moving, you know, loads of drywall every day, it probably makes sense to own the truck. Right. So, and, um, and your point about like how recent, you yeah, know, the recent company is I, I mean, coming to pure storage, right? right? I have a very recent uh, example of this, right? Coming to pure storage, pure storage as a company is less than 12 years old. Yeah. And so, um, you know, coming here, uh, there are so many things that uh, 
are just software as a service. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Internally, we use all these different providers for things that we don't have to have our own HR system and our own accounting system and all these other things. Because when we came into being, the options existed for us to, well, that doesn't differentiate us as a company. We want it to work. We want it to be good and we don't want to have to manage it. So we're going to use software as a service for that. And so, yeah, actually this, this laptop sitting in front of me is one week old. You know, I just hit the brief, <laughs> which is wonderful because I had sticky keys on my, on my old, on my old laptop. And so I just got this new one. And honestly, the only thing I really had to do was to do the file sharing option. And, you know, I have a bunch of files just mm. sitting in here. Not everything is in the cloud for right. me, but I, I just did the file sharing thing. And within 10 minutes, all of my files moved over I don't think I installed an app. Yep. I did. I, I, you know, I didn't go do an executable. Right. I didn't go, you didn't go run setup. Run setup. On, <laughs> yeah, I didn't go run setup on top of an right. operating system. Well, yeah. since you mentioned that about Pure and and you know, kind of to, to wrap because I always loved getting these conversations and and kind of just providing some examples and I always do this to folks. You know, anecdotally, you you talk with a lot of users, customers out there. You're trying to architect and solve problems. Any really interesting ones that stick out and and they don't have to do customer names, but any really big, big problems that you were solved that, that, that showed a really interesting way that we use the tech um, that is out there? Or you can do it just kind of generically about what's your, what's your favorite ones that you like to engage in. I think I spent a, a, a pretty good amount of time talking about, you know, there was, there was one example where it was a very, very large data set that people thought, well, it's going to have to be disk yeah. because I couldn't afford to do anything else or, or it wouldn't make financial sense to do anything else because no one's budget is truly unlimited. Um, and that was something where we went up against two different disk-based solutions. Um, and we were not the cheapest from what, what we understand, but, um, but we won based upon, you know, not only the performance that we provide, but also the flexibility that we had in, in terms of, of how we were able to solve for their problem. Um, it was a it was a very long project. Uh, it was a very long sales cycle. Um, but at the end of the day, uh, I think we made a big difference for that customer and for what they were trying to do. Um, and we're really looking forward to how we can, um, you know, level that up yeah. going forward. Yeah. Um, because, uh, you know, and that and that was the that was the uh, the project that I, I came to you and said here, I think there are new workloads that are, that are ready yeah, for flash. These are things because, that have been on disk. Because it was literally an opportunity where it was, well, we're going right. with disk for these things. We yeah. said, well, hold on a second. Right. Let's look at this. And then, you know, a lot of back and forth and, and well, we're going to go try it with the disk thing. Maybe we should try it with flash because maybe it'll do. And, and it was, it was better enough that they, they decided to make the jump and, and that was a, that was a big vote of confidence. Yeah. So, um, I, I really think that the, if you're, you know, and I know this isn't a, a huge segment of people, right. But if you're right. in, a, in a company and you're dealing with these really large data problems where you have something where you're just like, there's no way that could be anything but disc. Like that's the assumption that I'm here to challenge. Yeah. Is that, that's where we're trying to break down yeah. that, that, that facade. Well, let me, uh, let me ask it in a slightly different way than too, since for, for Flashblade, we talk about unified mm. fast file and object. Mm. Mm. What are some of those places where maybe you see different things 
kind of merging together, right? There's always been this concept of like one tool for one job, right? Well, those are yeah, yeah. those are our arrays that do backup and recovery. Mm-hmm. And those are things where we're doing data science projects, and mm-hmm. that's where our databases live. And this is where we have some unstructured data. But the whole concept behind UFFO is you no longer necessarily have to have those boundaries. It kind of takes right. this full circle to when you talked about FlashBlade being right. effectively a database right. under the covers. Well, the reason that you need all those different kinds of silos is because each of those different kinds of workloads needs different performance characteristics. Yeah. And so you have to tune the system to be like, well, this is the, the dedupe appliance for my backup, or this is the, the scale out file system that's really good at sequential stuff for video transcoding or whatever. I mean, here's the, the stuff that has just lots of drives that I'm short stroking to make sure that my, my random reads and right, yeah. are really yeah. high, right? right? And so, but once you build a system that makes a lot of those performance problems sort of just go away, then the rationale for having all of these different silos sort of goes away because the reason you're doing that is because you're constrained on some particular performance axis. Hmm. And so when the the possible world of performance expands greatly, then you can start to think, well, maybe I really don't need to have all these different things. And, and, you know, object in particular is, is really interesting because um, you know, we talked about public cloud, people are going to public cloud, right? Every application that sort of gets redesigned to run in the public cloud makes it great on Flashblade yeah. because we provide that high performance object. And, and there are you know, analysts now that are categorizing fast object as a different category of object storage, right? Because just like all block storage is not the same, and all file storage is not the same. All object storage is not the same, not from a performance characteristics, not from a market positioning, right? The, um, the category of object that we, um, that we occupy is really where these modern applications that were either written for the cloud or written for scale out containers or whatever, and they need persistent storage, you know, uh, it, there's, there's solutions like for containers specifically like Portworx, but then also if you're writing to S3, well, guess what? We have an S3 compliant uh, object store and it's fast. Very fast. And, and what was also interesting is when it first launched, it was um, an S3 uh, store that was immediately consistent. Yeah. Which was different than how Amazon worked at the time, right? If you wrote something to S3 or, or most other object stores, right? You wrote an object and then you read it back. It may or may not be what you just wrote because it may take a while for it to become eventually consistent because that's what they were. They were eventually consistent. Uh, ours was immediately consistent. And so we actually had some customers say, well, that doesn't really make you the same as Amazon now. But now Amazon's introduced immediately because yeah, it's S3, which yeah. sort of validates our, our uh, approach to it, right? There are applications that are using it where that's really important. And so it's a, it's a different way of approaching object storage. It's a, a high performance for modern applications and the more of these applications that are sort of written for this new world of computing, right, the, the better they, they work for us. And so we keep finding, or in some cases our customers, keep finding new applications that work really well on Flashblade. Yeah, I love those too. Which which is, which when is those kind of come in, they go, hey, by the way, do you know we can yeah. do this, right? Which, which is why, that's why we have awesome customers. Yeah, absolutely. Well, they're smart customers too. <laughs> they know what they want to do. Well, that's awesome. I, I think, you know, kind of to, to bring it home and, and summarize, um, you know, if you're out there and you've got some of these workloads, right, that are, that are still running on disk, we, we'd love to have a conversation with you and to explore, you know, each of the vectors 
right? Make sure it's a, it's a good fit from a performance standpoint, from right. an economics, from an environmental. So, I mean, the, all those, those vectors that are out there, but, um, you know, beyond that, anything to, to close with, uh, Great to great to talk with you again. It's great, it's great. to be in person in the yeah. in the office. We're doing the, the soft open right now, but uh, yeah, it's uh, it, it's funny. I uh, started at Pure, and then uh, I didn't meet my boss in person for over a year, which is pretty crazy. And then I had a coworker that started, and he got to meet everybody his first week, and I was so jealous. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, there's there's I'm, I'm I'm heading out to Colorado in a couple of weeks, and there's there's one of the uh, individuals on my team that that joined last July. Yeah. I, I don't know if he's tall. I don't know if he's short. <laughs> yeah, you know, it doesn't matter either way. I'm, but I'm not a short I'm, guy. I'm like 5'10", 5'11". Yeah, yeah, yeah. I found yeah. out I'm the shortest person on my team. Yeah. Who else? We don't I have no idea. Yeah. <laughs> Everybody looks a foot and a half tall. I know. On, on, on Zoom. Conference. Yeah, yeah on Zoom. So um, it's awesome. Well, thanks for suggesting we, we do this in person. This uh, this was totally a blast. Any, anything uh, to plug anywhere out there people can find you? Do you like uh, I like hearing from people on social media if they've. If I'm not. I'm not much of a social media guy, social media but uh, guy. If, you, right. if you check out purestorage.com/ai, we got a lot of great stuff yep. around artificial intelligence and just flashblade in general, UFFO. Awesome, awesome. Well, go and check that out, um, Justin. Great to have you on the program, and thanks everybody else out there for listening to this episode of the Pure Report. I hope you found this conversation interesting. I know I did. It was always great when Justin comes on and shares what is going on in that massive and interesting brain of his and we didn't even talk about Isaac Asimov too we'll have to we'll have to do that the next time because you, you threw that you threw that last question at us and I'm still trying to read through it's very yeah if that's it don't don't go find me on social media go read Isaac Asimov's the the last question there you go yes that's, that's my that's my call to action yes I I am part way through it and and enjoying it already so that is your call to action podcast listener out there uh thank you for listening tell a colleague tell a friend and we will continue to have great guests like Justin Emerson on the program. With that, we'll close for Pure Storage and Justin Emerson. This is Rob Ludman saying, don't look back. Something might be gaining on you. <laughs>